Like, when was the last Let's, time yeah. that we had something go right on the podcast? Well, uh, during the summer, but when we didn't have a podcast. We a podcast. <laughs> it's Friday, September 14th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast. Your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, master's student in civil engineering and the most hated student of the Netherlands. And with me today is Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and Dutch innovation hater. Our third regular podcast host, Gordon Derek, isn't here today. He's currently in Scotland for the presentation of his new book, All the Time We Thought We Had, which is also available in the Netherlands, by the way. In the second part of this episode, you can listen to an interview with Gordon about his uh, about his book, which uh, describes... Um, his move to the Netherlands and the death of his wife. Yes, and it's how they dealt with uh, his two children who, yeah, uh, who both have, have autism. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an intense book. But yeah, I you read it. That, yeah, I have read it, and I am the one that did the interview with Gordon, and it's I I think it is a very nice interview. So uh, that's in the second part. So that's the second half. But, but first, but first, Molly, you Paul, are a... no 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 no. Let us start with your oh, uh, okay. misdeeds. Yes. What have you done? Uh, as part of my ongoing um, uh, uh, ambition to uh, to be sent to hell, I changed the name of my personal Wi-Fi network at home into Edurome. Which is the name of the education network for all of the universities. Of in Europe. In Europe. Oh, in yeah, Europe, right. yeah. yeah. But um, in, my, in my building, 521 students live. And now they all think there's Edurome. Yeah. But they can't connect to <laughs> no. it. Have you, has there been complaints? Because you guys have like a Facebook group or uh, not? Not yet, not yet. But, but um, I mean, my the, the the range of my network isn't as l- that large that everybody can see it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that somebody will complain. complain. But the problem is when I uh, connect to my Wi-Fi at home um, and I, when I go to the university, it doesn't connect with the university Wi-Fi network because it has the same name. Oh. So I'm gonna have to log in manually every time I. Come to and the university. And how long will it take you before having to do that is too annoying? Um, probably two days. Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think so too. And Molly, um, you are a Dutch innovation hater. Yeah, I hate just the Netherlands in general, apparently. <laughs> but in particular, everything the Dutch have ever invented, ever, in the history of ever. Yes. Everything? Everything. Also, cookies? Mm, cookies are okay. Stroopwafels? Stroopwafels are fine. Pieterballen? Bitter baller, pretty delicious. Uh, apartheid? <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not a fan of apartheid. I, okay. think, I'm, I think I'm comfortable uh, saying that conclusively. No, no but you tweeted um, uh, a number of tweets about uh, all, the, all the times the Netherlands uh, was going to save the world by inventing something ridiculous. Uh, yeah, well, I've been on this sort of kick of finding it very frustrating that, like, mostly foreign media reporting, although it, there is some in the Netherlands, says, you know interviews someone here who has come up with some sort of invention, which may be cool or, or interesting or neat, but kind of portrays it as this like the world changing the thing. world changing thing, right? Yeah. That like, like what? That well, there, I mean, I have a whole list. You can go to my Twitter feed and read them all. But some of my personal favorites were like there was a story in the New York Times about how uh, elderly homes in the Netherlands had all these innovative ideas to like help people with dementia, which included uh, playing music for them. And as a side <laughs> note, when I was in high school, which was a while ago, we had to do like community service hours. And I did mine at an elderly home where they used to like 
play music for the patients because yes. it's kind of calming. Yeah, so. but the, they also have like um, uh, uh, bike highways and, yeah. uh, and and all these kind of stuffs. Yeah. So there was all, there's all of these like, oh, we're going to use recycled plastic to make a highway. But like, you know, that's fine for like a small stretch of road that like meets all these like very tiny criteria and is probably great for the city that it's in. But like we're going to 3D print some houses, which like this may be fine. They haven't actually 3D printed these houses. There's no testing to see if this is actually like efficient. The thing that really set everyone off though, most of these were fine. And then I started shitting on the Dutch water management system, which oh. here oh. in the Netherlands is lovely and works out great. But what happens is, is that like people come here and they say, well, the Dutch have figured out like how to live with rising sea levels. So like, we're all cool with this climate change thing and here's how the Dutch are fixing it with like no accommodation for the fact that, you know, the Netherlands is a very wealthy country that has a lot of money that it can spend on this water infrastructure, that there's like population wide buy-in for how important the Delta works are as evidenced by like how awful my Twitter mentions are right now. <laughs> and also that like, you know, this is not a country, you know, there's no hurricane Florence here. There's no like tsunamis. You guys don't have mountains. So you're not dealing with landslides. Like you cannot just pick up what is useful here necessarily and like just whole scale take it to a place like Indonesia or the United States. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. And so this isn't a criticism of the Dutch. I mean, I think the Dutch do a lot of like great and innovative things. It is criticism for the international media that use all these uh, examples and they blow them up. Uh, yeah. in, in, in and it's, I think it is like to some degree somewhat harmful because it just gives off this impression that like, well, maybe some Dutch guy will just invent a solution for climate change <laughs> and we're all going to be fine instead of like doing the hard work of like reducing emissions. Waiting for the Dutch. <laughs> like, this is not a good way to deal with things. Yeah, exactly. So the Twitter thread continues. We will link to it in the liner notes and you can Definitely. read yeah. how much I'm complaining about. Speaking of complaining about things, tell us about this week's OPEF. Um, the OPEF of the week involves a festival um, dedicated to the local Groningen speciality of Eierball. Which are known as Scotch eggs in English. Okay, I never heard of it though, but yeah. it, uh, apparently... It's a pretty popular, I mean like, definitely in the UK it's a very popular thing. Less so in the US, but like, my grandmother used to make them, so mm. like... Yeah. Well, apparently it's a Groningen speciality and they celebrated it at uh, its very own festival. Uh, this festival started last week at noon and was supposed to be open until 10, but already at 4 o'clock the festival had completely ran out of eierballen. Wow, that's... That's some, that's, that's that's some bullshit. Yeah. yeah, much to the disappointment and anger of many people who had paid 12 euros and 50 cents to enter the festival. Uh, people demanded their money back, but until now it's unclear if the organization will refund them. Um, but they, uh, the organization did say that they will make sure there will be more eierballen next year. Uh, okay, that's yeah. some bad logistical planning. Yeah, very also, bad. Also, like, why didn't they just run to the Albert Hein and like, <laughs> buy some more eggs? I'm not sure if they can have it. They, I'm not sure if the Albert Hein sells them. No, but I mean, you can make them. Uh, like, that's that's the whole point, yeah. I assume. But what the Albertine does sell are... Delicious flavors of strope no, waffles. No, 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 It's terrible. We are going to do a strope waffle flavor test for yes. sure. No, but I'm uh, I'm against this. I'm just... Uh, uh, I'm very conservative on the strope waffle level. <laughs> I mean, you have strope waffle and that's it. The rest are mistakes because they... Albertine is now selling a... Strawberry strawberry. Are you waffle. are you wedging a second opf into this opf discussion? I might be. Yes, <laughs> yes. But they also sell rosemary sea salt, mango chili strobe waffles, um, 
or, uh, uh, orange stroopwafels, which is ridiculous. And Come on, but rhombos and Lavender, black pepper. Caramel sea salt, banana caramel, those all sound delicious. It's, it's, it's weird to say that it is a caramel uh, stroopwafel. Stroopwafel, by definition, has caramel in it. That's true. Yeah, but the banana caramel one. Banana caramel. I would try the rosemary sea salt, a little sweet and salty combination. <sighs> I've been to a fancy hipster stroopwafel place and have had a flavored stroopwafels. That was a and mistake. I thought they were delicious. This week we talk about the latest Prinsjesdag news, update you on the Lily and Hoek saga, a Dutch defeat in France and Dutch success in the United States. Next week, it's the 3rd of September, and that means, Molly? It's Budget Day. Or, as the Dutch say, Prinsjesdag. <sighs> Prinsjesdag. But that's a very boring name. We call it Budget Day here, in the, here on this podcast. Yes. And also the, the English uh, website of Prinsjesdag. I think they got that from us. I think so, too. Think they, they refer did. to Prinsjesdag, they call it Budget, budget Day. Budget Day, yeah. It's what it should be called. It, it should be called Budget exactly. Day. Exactly. So that's your influence here, I yeah. think, Molly. I have lots of influence on the Netherlands. I know. On budget day, the king delivers a speech from the throne in which the government plans for the coming year is outlined. The day is full of pomp and ceremony and part of the tradition is that the plans are always leaked in the days before budget day, effectively making the king's job useless. This time it was the NOS which uh, laid their hands on the Macroeconomische Verkenningen, which is one of the most important financial reports in the enormous pile of documents which form the government's plans. The government says the purchasing power will grow by 1.5% on average, and 96% of Dutch households will be better off than last year. Additionally, the Dutch economy will be growing 0.2% uh, more than expected. The government will spend more on the military, education and infrastructure, as was agreed in the coalition agreement. The government will have a budget surplus of 2%, partly because of the settlement of 775 million euros with ING Bank, which we talked about last week. Yes. But there was more uh, more stuff leaked, right? Yes. There's a lot of leaking going on A lot this of year. leaking, yeah. Uh, the government sources have said the government estimates basic healthcare insurance premiums will rise around 10 euros a month, but there won't be an increase in the own risk element, which is currently set at uh, 385 euros. The maximum health insurance benefit will rise to 92 euros a month per person. Last year, the government expected a rise uh, of the premiums too, but most health insurance companies who are allowed to set their own fees kept well below that number, to put things into perspective. Yeah. Um, and MPs, there was, there was some, uh, there was some uh, complaining about the leaking, was yeah, there not? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, PVV uh, leader uh, Geert Wilders uh, is unhappy. He says 1.5% is not enough and doesn't come near a compensation for the many years of economically bad times. Henk Kroll of 50 Plus said he first needs to see the report before he believes it. And uh, SP MP Ronald van Raak was very angry at the leaking. And in the Tweede Kamer, he called for the ministerial officials who leaked the documents to be thrown into jail. Wow, what is this? Uh, Myanmar? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. He was or criticized. Venezuela. Or Venezuela, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was criticized by Pactold of the D66 and uh, uh, the Dutch news podcast favorite MP, Kadia Arib, who is the chairwoman of the yeah, parliament. Yeah, that's true. They were very mad at him. Yeah. They, they said. As uh, they should be. You should not threaten to go around throwing leakers in jail. Basically. No, that's true. Arib said uh, government officials uh, cannot uh, defend themselves uh, in the parliament, so uh, they shouldn't be attacked. And uh, Alexander Pechtold also. Uh, um, uh, criticized this because he uh, didn't uh, like that uh, the whole profession of uh, of uh, ministerial officials were attacked by uh, by the SP uh, Valid, MP. I think. Yes. Junior, 
Interior Justice Minister Mark Harbers has used his right of discretion to grant residency permits to two children who were threatened with deportation back to Armenia over the weekend. The children disappeared from their carers' homes on Friday night, shortly after a last-ditch legal attempt to keep them in the country failed, prompting a major police search. But their lawyer said late on Saturday afternoon that the children had turned up again safe and well. Since Harbers took office in October of 2017, he has granted 59 asylum seekers the right to stay after their initial claims failed. So uh, he can just let people stay. Apparently he can just do like whatever he wants. Now, the minister has the power of discretion to allow people who do not fit into the rules for refugee status residency to stay. The number of people he's granted residency permits to seems to be pretty in line with his predecessors. Meanwhile, the government has no intention of changing the current rules for granting residency permits to refugee children who are well-rooted in the Netherlands but do not meet normal requirements, Prime Minister Mark Rutte said on Monday. Yes, and Harvest initially uh, wasn't planning on using his power of discretion to, uh, to allow uh, Lily and... Um to stay, yeah. um, but uh, this changed when uh, the police uh, actively uh, called for people to uh, help them search for uh, for the children when they uh, disappeared uh, on Saturday. Yeah. And he said, um, or, or maybe he was pressured by uh, coalition uh, members and other leaders of the party who, uh, well, all of a sudden it became such a nasty yeah. situation, especially when the police called uh, for, for civilians to help search for them. Yeah. And it really uh, sounded much like uh, uh, World War II yeah. when, uh, when um, uh, citizens could earn seven guilders and 50 cents for every person they... Um, they reported right. for, uh, at the police who were in hiding. So, yeah, it, uh, it all became very nasty, and uh, that was the moment that, uh, that uh, Harvest decided uh, uh, to use his, uh, his discretion power. Yeah, which I think we all sort of agree with. It seems like they should have been allowed to stay. Yeah. According to research by Nieuwsuur and Trouw newspaper, the Dutch government supported an armed Syrian jihadist group called Jabet al-Shamia, which was labeled by the public prosecutor as a terrorist organization. The Netherlands provided them with uniforms and pickup trucks as part of a secret program providing non-lethal assistance to 22 rebel groups in Syria from 2015 to 2018. Currently, a Dutch member of the group will appear in court for participating in the terrorist group. The Netherlands has admitted they supported Syrian rebel groups for 70 million euros, but this support has stopped because the chance they will win the civil war against President Assad is very limited. This is insane. It is. So how did the Toyota Kama react? Did they say, quote, this is insane? <laughs> well, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much. <laughs> MPs were shocked by the news and they immediately demanded an explanation of ministers. Gert-Jan Segers of the Christian uh, Uni said uh, what appears to have happened is exactly what he was afraid of if the government uh, supported these groups. Uh, Sjoerd Schoersma, which is a name you can add to your... That's a name that's going on my list. ...on man. your weird uh, Dutch names list. Um, he is of uh, Days as a Sester, and he called the news shocking, and he wants to know how this could have happened, especially because the Tweede Kamer has warned the government several times for uh, situations like this. And Geert Wils of, uh, of the PVV tweeted, Rutte 3 is terrorists 1. And what, what does he mean by that, Paul? Rutte 3 is the... Um, uh, that's the name of the cabinet, yeah. because it's the third Rutte cabinet, so he says this cabinet is... Uh, similar to a uh, terrorist cabinet, yeah. the first terrorist cabinet. And people keep electing him. Junior Justice Minister Mark Harbers has had a busy week this week because he's also announced the Dutch government aims to publish draft legislation to modernize the Netherlands' tough laws on dual nationality in spring 2019 in a long-awaited briefing. The government aims the, to, 
The government aims to change the rules that only allow people a single nationality to permit both foreigners living in the Netherlands to take Dutch nationality without surrendering their own, and for Dutch nationals living abroad to take the nationality of the country they live in without losing their Dutch passport. So uh, currently you can't have dual nationality then? I could not. Um, you can have dual nationality if you were to marry a Dutch citizen. Um, or you can be born to someone in the Netherlands. So this is not does not apply to Dutch people who are living abroad, um, who have two nationalities, and then you can pass that down to your your child. Okay, so if you are a D Dutch expat who lives in Singapore or somewhere else, and you you are pregnant and you want to have your ch child to have the Dutch nationality, you have to deliver your child in the Netherlands. No, you can, but then they can't, if they get into trouble in places where you have birthright citizenship. So if you have your kid in the US, yeah. where they're automatically granted US citizenship, then in theory, those kids have to make a decision about which nationality they want when they turn, I think 18. Um, they can't keep it. Oh. Um, they could keep it, as I understand, if they're born here to parents who have two separate um, nationalities. But they're trying to change all of these rules, basically, so that like these issues wouldn't come up. Although there's some criticism about exactly how strict they want to be for those sorts of things, because there's some movement to say, well, you can only pass it to one generation, which some people aren't super helpful, don't don't think is like super useful. And also there's some criticisms of like exactly how much paperwork would be required to, to do this kinds of hmm. stuff. Yeah, um, because I know someone who has a Dutch mother and a South African father, and she was born in Canada, so she has three, three passports. passports. Yeah, so that uh, can't happen in the future. Yeah, they're, well, they're talking about perhaps getting rid of that um, mm. or saying that you would have to surrender these, which when people say, like, surrender your nationality or you surrender your passport, it makes it seem like you just, like, go to the embassy and you're like, here's my passport. But, like, in the U for the U.S., it's, like, just to fill out the application is, like, 10000 U.S. dollars to try uh. to get rid of your U.S. citizenship. And it's not as expensive in other places, but it's not just a matter of being, like, please take this passport back. So people who, for example, like your friend, who were born in Canada, which has birthright citizenship, which means they just get Canadian citizenship, it can really be a problem for them like later in life when they're like dealing with these situations. And it's not a thing that you can just easily solve. Like even if she's born there, even if she's only born there and the only day she ever spent in Canada is the day that she was born and then moves to the Netherlands, back to the Netherlands or South Africa or wherever, and like then never goes, sets foot in Canada again. Like... She could still face problems, you know, under some dual nationality regulations. So it's a thing that should be fixed. Yes. Also, so I can avoid having to marry my Dutch boyfriend to get <laughs> Dutch nationality. It's a thing that should be fixed. A frustrated Ronald Koeman said the Dutch national men's football team was on the right path, despite going down 2-1 to France in their opening UEFA Nations League match. Ryan Babel scored the equaliser in the Stade de France in Paris, which briefly gave the team hope to win from the world champion, but on 75 minutes Olivier Giroud scored the winning goal for France. Koeman told the NOS he was particularly aggrieved by poor defending of the winning goal, saying that we lost because of our own mistakes, adding that uh, the Oranje team is on the right track, as could be seen in the second half. And Molly, more news, very, very, very important news. The most important news, yes. frankly. This is so important that my mother-in-law like sent this to me because they, they live in Utrecht and she was like, Dick Lawyer! <laughs> yeah, so, Dick Advocaat. Dick re Lawyer! Yes, returned to the uh, Eredivisie fields. The 70-year-old will become uh, FC Utrecht's new coach despite his age. Um, he isn't the oldest team manager, though, in the Eredivisie effort. That record is held by uh, Foppe de Haan, which is also a name that uh, you can add to your ridiculous Dutch names list. Yeah, for tr true. Yes. That is true. Foppe. Yeah. What, what kind Foppe. of name is that? Friesian. 
Parisian, of, of course. course. Um, he was 72 when he uh, was a uh, coach the last time. But Dick Lawyer, uh, who announced his retirement several times already, apparently doesn't want to enjoy the enormous pile of money he collected in his long career as football manager, including the national coach for the Netherlands, Russia, South Korea, the United Arab Emirates, and Serbia. It's an interesting uh, place to... Uh, he just go living. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And if you see on Wikipedia his list of where he was a uh, trainer, it's, it's an enormous list. Yeah. It's endless. Yeah, that's what happens when you're a dick lawyer. Yes. Paul, it's your favorite story of the week. Yes, Dutch is. singer Glennis Grace has made it through to the finals of the U.S. talent show America's Got Talent. There are three singers in the final, including a 14-year-old girl from Britain. I don't want to slight the others, but America has absolutely made a good choice, said judging panelist Simon Cowell. You really deserve a place in the final, and I am very happy for you. The winner of the contest gets a million dollars, a recording contract, and a show in Las Vegas. Paul, I know you've been following this closely. Who do you think will win? Uh, I think, yeah, I think Lens Grace has a, has a good chance of yeah, winning. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I hate her. <laughs> Why do you hate her? Well, she has an amazing voice. Yeah. We have to say that. Yes. But her personality is the worst. What is wrong with her personality? Everything. She is just a very hateful person. Really? Yeah. Are you just being racist? No, 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 I'm Are not. Are you sure? No, I'm, I'm very sure. Can you give me some examples of her being a... Uh, well, there is a, a famous uh, moment uh, where she's interviewed in the streets of Amsterdam and uh, uh, um, a car passes her by, in, uh, according to her, too close, and she starts yelling at the, at the driver, and the driver hears her screaming at him, so he steps out and they start fighting in wow. front of the camera. Classic. Yes. She also once um, retweeted... A, a fan's uh, tweet, uh, I believe he had uh, Down syndrome and he wanted to uh, come into contact with her, so he sent her her phone number and send, then she retweeted it to their to her thousands of followers, wow. which was very sad. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. And um, but she has an amazing voice. We have to say that it really uh, sounds similar to uh, Whitney Houston's yeah. voice. Yeah, this is what she got really famous for, right? Was yeah. this video of her singing Whitney Houston's? Yes, and when she was uh, she was fifteen or sixteen, she participated in a TV show uh, which um, um, let people perform as their. Uh, no, they're the their favorite singers. So she performed as Whitney Houston. And she used her own voice. That was the idea of that show. And yeah, it 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 almost sounds exactly like Whitney Houston's yeah. voice. Um, uh, however, in which also irritates me very, very, very much is that in um, America's Got Talent, which is called America's Got Talent, what is a Dutch singer doing there? To begin or with, a British singer. or a British singer. Apparently, America doesn't have a whole lot of talent. No, apparently seems. not. But uh, she uh, portrays herself in this show as a single mom who yeah. doesn't do anything um, or doesn't perform well. She knows she has a nice voice, but she doesn't do anything with it. While in the Netherlands, she sings for the for the largest uh, yeah, arenas, and she's super yeah. famous. So, yeah, that annoyed me as well too. Mm -hmm. That that she used this this. I mean, it's true that she's a single mom, that's yeah. true, but uh, th the rest of it is um, yeah. um, a bit exaggerated. Yeah, well, that's reality TV for you. Yeah, exactly. But I think, um, well, it, 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 when she announced that she was going to uh, uh, go to America, I was like, uh, yes, she's gone. <laughs> but now she is uh, uh, about to win the contest. She's more in, on, in the Dutch media than ever. She's going to more into the Dutch media, yeah. So uh, now I hope she comes back. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, we have an interview of our very own Gordon Derrick about his new book, All the Time We Thought We Had, by our very own Molly Quell. So pretty much everyone is involved in the second half but you, Paul. Exactly. GMW Lawyers is an innovative law firm located in The Hague, 
with clients based both in the Netherlands and abroad. They are known for their dedicated, committed and no-nonsense approach and will work to achieve the best result for you. GMW specialises in family, employment, corporate, liability and property law. They also support the Legal Expat Desk, a legal resource for internationals. You can find them online at gmw.nl and the Legal Expat Desk at legalexpatdesk.nl. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch. You won't be charged for initial legal advice. You can reach them by email at info at gmw.nl. So I'm here today with uh, Gordon Derrick, who regular listeners may uh, recognize as being a regular podcast co-host. Hello. Uh, and uh, he is a, a fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and apparently has some spare time to, uh, to occasionally write a book. I don't seems. really, but I did. But you did manage to because the book is book. physically sitting here in front of us. Yes. Um, so, Gordon, can you like tell the listeners a little bit about like the book and what it discusses? Yeah, very simply, this is um, a memoir, um, and it's about um, what happened around about the time I was moving to the Netherlands, which is that my wife, Machtelt, uh, who was Dutch, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, um, and then just as we were getting set to move, uh, the cancer came back, so she was terminally ill, so we moved. At the point when we actually moved, um, she had a few months, probably, to live. And so it's the story of how and why we made that decision and went ahead with that uh, with our two children uh, as well, who are autistic. So it was quite a challenge. The, it's a, it's a, I've read the book and it is a, it's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Um, why did you decide to write about like this part of your life? Um, well, I, I've uh, always uh, been uh, um, a writer in various guises. I mean, I've, I've, I'm a journalist by trade, but also I've done, uh, over the years, I've been writing, you know, sort of um, fiction in my spare time and always looking for things to write about. And at some point I sort of thought that there wasn't any really fictional subject that was as dramatic as what was going on in my real life. So I sort of thought I'm going to write about it. Why not write about what's actually been happening over the last few years? And also it was kind of, you know, it, it was such a busy and chaotic time that actually just the act of writing it down helped me to, and untangling it um, and writing about it, helped me to make sense of it. So it became part of the grieving process in a way, or the process of kind of, yeah, coming to terms with, uh, you know, these enormous changes in my life. Was it difficult to like revisit this subject? Uh, I mean, and sort of, yeah, go through it sort of in such detail? It was to begin with, I think, um, and but but actually, I mean, I think it was constantly obviously playing it over in my head. So actually, putting it down on paper, I mean, I just find for me that is often quite a soothing and reassuring thing to do. Just anyway, so once I got going, once I'd actually sort of untangled the the course of events, I actually found it quite a cathartic exercise in a way and actually just uh, being able to born out and think in depth about what had happened um and then you know sort of write uh, because so, so it's not just a chronology of um of the events that happened in that time it's also some sort of pauses for reflection and think about how this has changed my perspective on life which it certainly has um and yeah just just pulling all that together and then make it into you know what I hope is a you know, the best piece of writing I could do about it. it was yeah which was for me a very kind of fulfilling thing to do in the end but it was really hard going obviously and just finding the time to write it and then edit it and then find a publisher for it that was I'm not quite sure how I actually managed to do that how when did you start <laughs> writing the book and like how long did it sort of take you to get through this this whole publishing process well first of all I actually wrote a kind of much shorter version of it because what I saw was that there's a publishing company in Ireland called Fish Publishing and they do a memoir competition for a short memoir of up to 8,000 words. So I thought well, that, that was quite a good way to sort of test out whether I actually had the material to turn this into a book because obviously you know, this is a very dramatic and traumatic event but whether or not it actually 
I could make it work as um, a piece of writing that people actually wanted to pick up and read, I wasn't quite sure. So doing this short version was uh, quite a good test. So I did that in January 2015. Muttle died in May of the previous year. That was my first kind of draft of it. And I sort of felt like that went quite well. It got on the long list for the prize. I wrote that and then I read it back and I reflected on it and I thought, yeah, I think I'm probably, uh, I still want to do this, uh, to try and turn this into a full length book. Um, how has the book been like received so far, I think, by like family and friends? I mean, obviously, it's a story that's very close to you and, and other people, right? I mean, you, you know, you were not the only person in, your, in Mechtel's life, right? Like her family and that sort of thing. So how have, have people responded to it? Yeah, I've been quite selective in who's read it so far in the test. I know in the, these days, uh, people are kind of encouraged to find some beta readers and you'll yeah. get lots of um, their friends to read their book. But th- with this one, I, I did ask a few people to critique it when it, some of the early chapters when I was uh, when I started out, but a lot of people found that really hard because there were people who knew me and knew Machtel during the time this was going on, and I sort of realised I was asking people to kind of critique my life, really. Yeah. And you can't really do that, you know. It's not the same as when you're doing a sort of just uh, critiquing a piece of fiction. You right. can say this isn't plausible, or you know, this plot device doesn't quite work. You know, this is real life and something that actually happened. So not a lot of people have read it, but I think the family members who've uh, who obviously feature in the book as well. I read it back and they were quite complimentary about it, I think. Um, but uh, and it's quite hard to say to go into any kind of depth of, uh, you know, real practical criticism, unless you're somebody who doesn't know me at all and has come from the outside and you know, it wasn't involved in the whole course of events. Uh, that's probably easier, I would guess. Did you get a lot of uh, feedback and stuff from from the editor who who worked on the book? And, ha- yeah. and how, how was that to, to sort of take it? Because it is such a personal story. It is a really personal story and the editor was really good. I, mean, I have to say, I've been really happy with my publisher so far. It's a small uh, publisher based in Edinburgh, um, Polygon, and uh, they assigned an editor to me and we worked very closely together on it. Um, and she was just very constructive. Didn't change a huge amount. I mean, I, I'd, I'd done two very, well, two and a half very thorough drafts of it already. So it was a lot of tinkering, really. But there's, a good, there's some good feedback. Um, she suggested moving a few things around in the, in the order of the book because the structure was one of the things I really struggled with when I was writing it. Um, so no, it, was, it was a very positive exercise. I think it definitely improved as a piece of work from having an editor. Having worked as an editor myself, I know that you know, I, I wouldn't think of trying to put anything out uh, for publication without having it gone over thoroughly by somebody else. And I know how important that process is. Yeah. So you mentioned structure was a thing that you struggled with. And the book isn't told in like a strict chronological order. So why did you make the decision to sort of tell the story? Why? It, well, it starts out, and I suppose, I mean, with my journalist hat on, I sort of thought that you need to have something at the start of the book that grabs people. And also, this is a book about fundamentally the, the basic stories, the core of it, essentially, is the period from when Machtel was first diagnosed, which is August 2012, it's actually my birthday when she got the diagnosis, um, up until when she died in May 2014. And it starts off with the with the day that she gets that first diagnosis and just the whole shock of that, because she was a very healthy young woman, 36 years old, two children, um, went running and, you know, didn't smoke or drink. And all of a sudden it's just uh, cancer, just complete, uh, no family history either. Yeah. So cancer just completely came in from the blue. So start off with that real impact. I thought was the only real, that, that was a logical way to start the book. Having done that, I then sort of realised that first of all, I thought two and a half, although a lot happened in those less than two years, it wasn't really enough for a book by itself. Also, I didn't want Maxwell to just be in the book as a sick woman. I wanted to tell a story of, you know, of our whole relationship together and also explain how, you know, her illness and her death changed the way that I sort of viewed 
our, our relationship and our marriage. But but if I started that in chronological order, what you get is basically the first 80 pages is quite a dull story, basically about a couple who meet in their teens and then move in together and have children. In, right. And then all of a sudden the cancer comes in halfway through, by which time you've probably stopped reading. Yeah. So that's why I did it that way, really. I sort of started with the cancer diagnosis and then sort of backfilled all the kind of early part of our early marriage, which, to be pretty frank, isn't by itself particularly... Um, interesting except that it is in the context of you know the fact that she then gets very ill very quickly and dies and that makes me completely ask some very fundamental questions about you know um about our lives together so the book ends in 2014 early 2015 i yeah. think when you when you spread her ashes so yeah. it's now 2018 how, um, you're still living here in the netherlands yeah. um you still have two children mm. how has life been since then it's less frantic i suppose <laughs> thankfully yeah. i mean the, the early years were just very you know the first couple of year or two or year and 18 months over here it was just just full on it was really really busy i was trying to find work i was just recovering from the shock of you know muffle having died and you know deteriorated in very short order and we were just finding our feet and i had to get the boys settled into school had to get them settled into life here it took i think six months uh for them to really adjust to the fact that this is now home and uh yeah since then we've gradually been sort of uh, settling in i suppose and they're now in school doing well for themselves i you know i'm getting enough work to go get by i'm starting to get a bit of a social network but you know i don't have a lot of spare time because i'm looking after two children by myself and just adjusting to single parenthood has been a huge shock and a bit of a revelation actually i think i didn't realize even though i thought that we you know we were quite a sort of modern progressive couple who shared the domestic duties actually Marta probably did about three quarters of the work in the house and having to take that on at a time when you're in deep in grief is really really hard going yeah did <laughs> you have a lot of support from uh, Maxwell's family here i mean you you seem like you're quite close to them at least in the book yeah definitely i mean her parents have been have been great i mean they, they live over in Trenta, so it's a two hours drive but they they come over regularly and we see them over here and Maxwell's sister um who lives in the hague just two streets uh, away from us with her family she, she she's uh, helped out uh, as well um, and she's got another sister who lives over in Arnhem, obviously further away with younger children, um, but she helps. We're all regularly in contact with each other and we meet up together quite a lot. So, yeah, her family definitely have, uh, have been very helpful, particularly her parents. You know, have to, uh, they've done a lot and, uh, for the boys and the boys go over and stay with them and they're very much involved in their lives, which is good to see. Because I know one of the things I've uh, discovered from uh, you know, being in contact with other people who've been widowed at a young age is quite often the, they sort of drift away from their in-laws because yeah. I think it's almost too painful for everybody it's one of those things that you find as well say it's striking how often people who lose children when they're very young and uh, go on to split up because yeah. they just can't live with the pain and i think yeah. that happens a lot with when people are, when you're widowed that um you know the fact that every time you meet your in-laws you're sort of reminded of that loss that you share and you just can't you can't cope with it so i think i'm lucky in the sense that i've had uh, a very supportive family here especially as you know obviously you know, we moved to another country where, and part of the reason we did that was to have the family support. Yeah. And you hadn't lived in the Netherlands before, right? So, no. so how was the kind of integration process in that regard without someone here to sort of help you through it? <laughs> yeah, well, luckily, I mean, I did already speak Dutch because I'd known Machtel since we were teenagers. So, and because she was from Drenthe, where not everybody speaks particularly good English, um, I'd I'd learnt Dutch. And also, also just as a courtesy, yeah. actually, you know, when you're at a big family gathering and you're the only non-Dutch speaker, it just seems a bit, you know, in, a bit much to impose on people that they insist on that they translate everything for you. Right. So, um, yeah, I could speak the language and it was a real immersion because obviously when we first got here, 
uh, we, the first thing we did was sort of uh, set up a, a meeting at the hospital with a cancer surgeon who was talking about you know sort of treatments and chemotherapy in Dutch. Yeah. So yeah, my, my, my language improved <laughs> quite yeah, a lot. It sort of had uh, to be, yeah. because of these extreme challenges. Um, and then the integration from then on, um, obviously, you know, we've um, it's worked fairly well. Though I have to say, I mean, although I'd been visiting the Netherlands for twenty years and I thought I knew the country quite well, there was a lot that uh, there's a lot of things that I hadn't uh, um, uh, reckoned with. You know, just just the sheer massive bureaucracy you have to go through to make any kind of a serious decision. You know, yeah. like getting the children into schools. Yeah. Um, obviously, being autistic, they're in special needs education, so there's all kinds of permits and um, just meetings that you have to hold and um, and, and sort of eight page reports that uh, that get produced. Uh, you know, and recommendations from sort of three or four different advisory bodies. So yeah, that, that was quite hard going, but. Um, yeah, you have a story in the book about uh, trying to register and how uh, this was like really a. Uh, uh, can you maybe maybe you can relay that for the for the listeners? It's yeah, that, sort was, of, uh... that was when we, we we registered at the town hall and um, we just came up against um, one of these um, people who um, uh, who you encounter from time to time in the in the Dutch bureaucratic system. Not all Dutch bureaucrats, some are very nice, but um, we turned up at the town hall uh, or the city hall in the Hague, and the background to this was that Machtel, first of all, Machtel was in a wheelchair, so it was took longer to get around, and she'd only been in a wheelchair for a few weeks. Um, and uh, we went to the city hall for the appointment and also the centre of the Hague at that time the um, spring of 2014 was one big building site I mean, yeah. all the roads were being dug up so I had to wheel over these duck boards and I think I had, went in and out of a shop at one point and basically we got there 15 minutes late and of course then we, by that point we'd been wiped from the system yeah. and the woman sort of looked at the clock and said um, uh, you're going to have to come back another time and I said no we're not coming back another time because I've got a very sick woman here who's taken an extra morphine tablet so that she can endure the tram ride into town. We are going to get ourselves registered right now. And so she sort of scowled at me. She gave me this scathing look and, um, and then sort of spat out a ticket. And then sure enough, we were sort of put, were put in an emergency queue. And actually, we were seen about 10 minutes later. Yeah. At which point, it turned out that Muscle had already been registered in the system because she'd, um, she'd registered when she moved into the hospice yeah. when she first got here. Our house wasn't ready, so she moved. She had a, she had a place in a hospice. Um, uh, so actually, all, all we need to do is register a change of address. Um, so yeah, that, which you could do online, <laughs> which yeah. you can do online, or we could have done just the local um, uh, council office, just uh, you know, d- just down the road. We didn't right. have to come all the way into the city centre. Yeah, yeah, so. but this was after they sort of refused to register her the first time, right? Like yeah. you had gone, and they said yeah. no, she has to be here, and you were like, yeah, but she's she's literally dying in a hospice, yes. and they were like, yeah, no, but you have to bring her here, yeah. and you were like, this is absurd. Yeah, and the other the, the, the other reason that was important, of course, is that uh, you you only qualify for medical insurance from the date that um, that you're registered as a resident. Right. So she'd been registered two weeks later she'd have had two weeks less of medical cover which right. given that she was going through cancer treatment uh, was, was quite was, was quite very expensive was, was very expensive and very important to get that sorted out right yeah so do you plan on writing another book more books fi- fiction books um yes i mean i've got a few ideas in the pipeline probably fiction i think i don't yeah. I, I wouldn't want to uh, yeah i'm not planning a sequel to this partly because the children are a bit older now and i think you get once they get into their teens, you kind of have to be a bit more protected of their privacy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a, I've got a few ideas for maybe maybe I've sort of dabbling with the idea of historical fiction because as a journalist, you know, you do a lot of you get used to doing sort of a lot of research. Right. So I thought yeah, I quite that kind of appealed to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So give us the uh, the logistics about the book. Uh, what is it called? When can readers find it? Where will they be able to order it from, etc.? Uh, it's called All the Time We Thought We Had. Uh, it's being published on September the sixth. I think it's going to be in Dutch bookstores at the same time as in uh, British bookstores. 
Yeah, it's published by Polygon, so you can order it either, or you can either get it in the shop, or you can order it on uh, Amazon or Bol.com, or direct from the publisher, uh, Berlin, B-I-R-L-I-N-N. Nice. Yeah. It will be in, like, the, the ABC and stuff? It should be. I know there's discussions about which Dutch bookstores it's going to be sold in, um, and uh, but I'm, I'm sure it'll be available in uh, you know in all, all the regular bookshops. Okay. Uh, uh, hopefully Pachmann as well. That's my local bookstore. That's your local bookstore. Yeah. Nice. Well, um, we will include a link to the Amazon link uh, about the book if people are interested in the, in the Bol.com. Uh, thing about the book. I have now finished it. I spent a few weeks reading it. When Gordon sent me the email about this, he said, uh, you know, it's not supposed to be depressing. That was that was a bit of a lie. It is kind of a depressing story, but not, not. I don't think in a bad way. I think in a, in a really, it, it's, it's very well written and the story is like very, yeah, interesting and very intense. Um, I wouldn't consider it a light, like beach sort of read, but it is certainly no, I like, recommend it for the yeah, beach. I would not recommend it for the beach, um, but it's really, really good. And I think, in particular, I mean, as someone that doesn't have children, it was really sort of interesting to see the development of like your relationship and how that sort of happened together with the kids and sort of like thinking about like all of these what ifs. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, and I hope that it uh, does uh, very well for you. Thank you very much. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at DutchNews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at DutchNews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leaving us a rating. My thanks to uh, Molly Quell and a bit to Gordon Derek. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Music.